Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it. It's almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. This is episode 320 of the Survival Podcast. It's Wednesday, November the 18th, 2009, and I am once again podcasting, of course, from the personal mobile studio, the Jetta Diesel TDI, and uh, we're going to have a good show today. I'm going to do a show on food storage. I haven't done that for a while. I'm going to back up and uh, go through some of the fundamentals again. You know, when I was uh, playing football, playing soccer as a kid, if uh, every once in a while, even if we were doing everything right, the coach would back us up and go through fundamentals. So we're going to be doing that uh, for a few shows here. That's why we did kind of the, the ten pieces of the uh, modern survival philosophy yesterday. That's why we're going to back up on food storage a bit. And plus, we have new people coming into the show all the time. I want to make sure that we're doing a variety of topics that, that help everybody out that listens. Before that, though, let's knock out some housekeeping. Uh, number one, make sure you're taking care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you guys by making sure there's a show every day. Uh, sponsor number one, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtac.com. Guys are great. They have really cool stuff and they're running a special for you guys. Uh, order anything from Sawtac and mention TSP on the checkout. Mention you got uh, found them on Survival Podcast and they'll send you a free 50 foot hank of 550 cord. So you can get some free 550 cord with any order at Sawtac. Um, next, Ready-made resources. That's, that's they give you what they say. Ready-made resources for the modern survivalist. Uh, they are running a special right now, uh, coincidentally, on food. Uh, long-term storage food is 25% off between now and the 30th of the month, between now and November 30th. So right through Turkey Day, 25% on all the mountain house and stuff like that. Plus, if you order case-sized lots, they're giving you free shipping. That's a pretty damn good deal. So check out Ready-made resources for that deal. Uh, next, get involved with our forum. Remember, I'm going to be giving out two free memberships to the Supporting Members Brigade when we hit 4,000 forum members. It's a listener appreciation thing. The, the catch this time is you have to be a forum member to play. What we'll do is we'll pick some uh, random numbers and see what, which, what that leads us to in the forum. We'll pick two forum members. If those people already have MSB memberships, they have a choice to either turn it down and let someone else win or to gift it. Uh, to somebody else. So two MSB memberships should be up for grabs by the end of the week. If you join after number 4,000, you don't get to play this time. All right? So you got to join today or tomorrow. You're going to miss the opportunity to win that. If you're not an MSB member, not a forum member, go join the forum today. Um, Next. Um, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. It's a great way to support the show. I've really added a lot of value to it. There's about $130 of value on it from day one. Your contribution, $5 a week or $50 a year. And that goes to support this show and make it even better for you. Remember, it's because of people doing that that in January I'm going to be doing this show 100% full-time, dedicated to you, the audience, and making it even better. And uh, not even out of traffic so much while 
on doing it. So there you go. Last, real quick on the housekeeping. I know it's a bit longer, but hey, man, I want to win this thing. I think it would be a big win for us uh, as a show and for us as an audience as well. Uh, I've been nominated for the podcast awards. Remember to vote today. Remember to do like an acorn voter. Vote early and often. You can vote once a day, every day, until the contest ends. So remind yourself with an Outlook reminder, an email reminder, set up an alert. I don't tie a string around your finger, but vote for us once a day and make sure you click the confirming email link um, and uh, make sure your vote counts. Early and often, just like an acorn voter. All right, with that, the housekeeping is wrapped up. Right about three minutes of housekeeping because the intro was not part of the housekeeping. All right, try to keep it down for you. All right. What I want to talk to you today is about storing food. And it's one of the things that, I don't know, it it bugs me in a way that every time uh, we get featured in the media, and I don't mean we as in the survival podcast, I mean preppers in general, survivalists in general, anybody that's, you know, presented as self-sufficiency advocate, um, self-reliance type individuals, doesn't matter. Whenever there's a featured media story on us, it always seems to circle around food. As though storing food is somehow odd. It's just not normal to have more food than you're going to need for the next five to seven days in your home. And it has become not normal in the psyche of the American people because that's how everybody lives now. And it started when people started living paycheck to paycheck. And we think of that as a bad thing, but in some ways it was a progressional thing for society because a long time in America, people didn't live paycheck to paycheck. They didn't get paychecks. Most people in this country were farmers. They were entrepreneurs, they were trappers, they were craftsmen. And money flowed in and flowed out, and it didn't always have a regularity to it. So because of that, people understood that in times of plenty to store up, like the ant, instead of being a dumbass grasshopper and squander everything, because they had to, because the consequences were severe, and nobody sent you food stamps and a welfare check and Section 8 housing to live in. And that's just the way it was. When we got the country kind of industrialized to the point where the majority of people worked a job and got a frequency-type paycheck, I knew I could count on X amount of dollars coming in at Y amount of frequency over and over and over again as long as I keep my job. That's when the whole concept of I'm going to store food went away. Because I don't need to worry about it because next Friday I'm going to get paid again and I'll go to the grocery store. And that's really how we lost this ethic. And it is an ethic. It's, it is absolutely, to me, a moral ethic that if we are taking care of each other, and what I mean by that is taking care of your family, your children, your wife, your husband, uh, and yourself so that you're not a burden on society, that we don't squander surpluses. We save them and we invest them in ourselves so that we can be self-sufficient. And that it only, only it, like people always talk about charity and helping others. And that's great. And we do our fair share. But you can only help other people if you're self-sufficient. It, and there's so many people that think they're helping others. And all you're doing is being a, a connection joint between one charity and another. In other words, if you're not self-sufficient, I don't mean 100% self-sufficient, living on a farm, no job, that type of thing where you could... I'm talking about if you're taking any form of assistance and then you're rendering assistance, all you're doing is taking a portion of the assistance that was given to you and giving it to somebody else because you really didn't need that much. Only a, a person or a family that's providing everything that they need for themselves 
can legitimately extend aid unless you extend more aid than you're given. And I think people don't understand that anymore. And that all comes from having an understanding of the flow of energy, of money, of commodities, of things. And that when the flow is high, you take a surplus. And every single thing in the world, every animal in the world that survives through winter follows this ethic. Squirrels bury nuts. Right? Um, Deer don't really store food, but they learn where to get it at all times of the year. And they shift their movements to what's available. Uh, But wherever you look, you'll find, again, the the one we go back to is the ant. The ants store food all year, and that's why you're dealing with fire ants are so hard to get rid of. Because they just go down in their hole until the winter's over. So every creature in the world that's capable of doing this, that has enough forethought to comprehend it, does food storage in some form, and yet we think it's odd. And that's really a huge mistake. Now, if we're going to start a food storage program, we need to do it in a logical, methodical way that makes sense. And this wasn't necessary for someone to talk about 100 years ago, because everybody did it and everybody got it, and it was conventional wisdom. It is now lost wisdom. And that's why we must talk about it and bring people back around to it. Rule number one, store what you eat. In 1900, no one would have had to tell your great-grandmother to store what she ate. She wasn't going to store something she didn't eat, unless somebody across the street ate it, and she knew she could trade it for something she did. So she only stored things that had a value to her individually. Why do I start with this rule? Because of everything I talked about yesterday and how important it is that people stay with this lifestyle from now until the day that they put, they're put in a box and lowered into the ground. If you don't do that, none of it matters. Because if you quit, then that's going to be just by Murphy's Law when something's going to go wrong and you wish you didn't. And the only way that you're going to stay with something is if it benefits you even when nothing's going wrong. And when you store what you eat, you have no conflict. And what it makes me think of whenever I say this is the antithesis of this. And that is the person that goes out and freaks out one day and says, Oh my God, some catastrophe is going to come. And then they, they, they get a catalog and they go find you know $6,000 worth of freeze-dried food. And they buy it, and they stick it all down in their basement in one place, which is a tremendous mistake in of itself, because if everything you have is in one place and something happens to that spot, then you've lost everything. And they just sit there and they look at it. And then one day they can't pay a bill and they realize there's $6,000 worth of food in the basement. And if nothing else, if nothing else, they should be able to cut back on their grocery bill and go down there and eat that food. But, since they just bought a great big portfolio of food they've never tried, they've never sampled, they've never used, they really don't like, they don't understand, they don't even do that, it just sits there and eventually it ends up on Craigslist and we can buy it cheap. So that's why we start out with store what you eat, because it prevents that from occurring. And it's not that we're against long-term storage, I'm going to get there in a minute. But you have to start out storing what you eat. It is a simple process. You go to the store, you have something you buy almost every week, you buy one of it every week, buy three of it this week, put two in your pantry. Next week, buy two more. Next week, buy two more. Pretty soon you have three months worth of this item stacked up into your pantry. 
and then you just buy one whenever you go to the store. Or if you don't go to, now you're not going to go to the stores often. We'll get to that too. But let's say you've used two. Well, all you do is pull everything to the front of the pantry and buy two more and stick it in behind and create a rotational pattern in your pantry. It's that easy. And that you can do that with anything that doesn't go in the refrigerator or the freezer. You can, you can have extra stuff in your freezer and refrigerator too, but it's less, it's less efficient as a storage model because in a crisis you may not be able to re- rely on that refrigeration or freezing to continue for you long term. So it makes sense to begin your storage activities with food that you eat every day, right in your own home, And this is what I want you to do if you're new to food storage. Get a little notebook, put it on the counter in the kitchen. Every time you eat something that that you can store without putting it in the refrigerator, write down what it is. Everything that comes out of the pantry, the cabinet, the drawers, uh, a, a sealed jar, anything that made, even if you uh, you open something that stores on the shelf that after you open it, you refrigerate it, but it stores outside of the refrigerator until you open it, anything like that, write down that you ate it. I don't care if you eat one. Do it for two weeks. Don't think about it. Don't, don't make this a diet experiment. Just eat whatever the hell you want for two weeks and journal it. And at the end of those two weeks, guess what? You know what to buy. Write down everything the kids eat. Write down everything your spouses eat. Don't go out and just start buying stuff because you think, oh, this will store long and this would be good in that situation. Actually follow the rule. And the only way you can follow the rule is to first know what you eat. And I think most Americans, and this is why we're fat, we don't know what we eat. We subconsciously, we walk in, grab a handful of chips, down it goes. You know? We don't even, I get a handful of chips in between the, the, the timeouts at the football, you know, during the football game you're watching on Sunday. You don't even, they didn't go in a bowl, you know, you didn't set them out on the table for everybody, you just shoved them in your beak and you ate it. That happens all the time. All I'm saying, I don't care what it is, I'm not trying to correct your nutrition, we'll get to that later. For now, just start storing what you eat. A big thing that can help you with this process, when you go to the grocery store and you're going to buy that box of crackers, don't take the one from the front. Look all the way to the back and take the one from the back. Grocery stores stock from the rear, just like you should run your pantry, because most people buy stuff and eat it right away. So they want the stuff that's the newest, the furthest back, so they get the longest shelf life. This is especially true in warehouse stores. Uh, I just picked up a couple boxes of a, a variety pack of crackers. We'll actually use one for our big Christmas party. A couple of them go into storage and will get used as we need them. Uh, really cool ones from um, Costco. Great deal. Huge box. Like five different varieties. And the ones on the top had an expiration date of January 1st, 2010. Well, that's right around the corner. Uh, and then the, you know, Costco, big warehouse stores, so they're on pallets. The next layer down, April 1st, 2010. And then my wife's like, what are you doing? So I like dig down to the bottom and I pull two out of the bottom. September 1st, 2010. By pulling the ones off the bottom, I extended the storage life nine months. And those storage limits on food like that honestly can be broken and bent a little bit without much concern, especially if you're dealing with Temperature storage is in the 7 degrees and down inside climate-controlled environments. Because those expiration dates are for worst-case scenarios. Food's traveling around in warehouses, up in attics, back rooms, uh, vans, uh, trucks, things like that. So always check behind 
And in warehouse, it's always shut down, right? Um, I, I'm not advocating that you go in there with your razor knife and open the pallet up that's overhead, but I bet you those have even longer storage lives. If they happen to be open, you might want to check the dates there, right? We've, we've done that a lot with buying food storage items from Costco. And I'm not a Sam's Club member, but I imagine Sam's Club, BJ's, all of those places that operate that way, you're going to find a lot of the same things. Now let's move on to phase two. It's called the opportunity buy. And the opportunity buy is a, a, two, a two-headed uh, snake here, so to speak. The one is the opportunity buy that everybody talks about, right? It's in all the little journals, ladies' home journal and all, and how to trim your budget and all. It's just buying stuff when it's on sale. Uh, buying a discount out of bulk. Buying, you know, whatever you can do to find a better deal, clipping coupons, you name it. That's one half of the opportunity buy. And during the ramp up to your storage, by all means, if you use Jif Crunchy peanut butter and, and you go to the store this week and uh, Jif Crunchy peanut butter is on sale for half off, limit five, that stuff stores forever. Buy five jars of it immediately. Because you have an opportunity to buy there that just happened to, to work out for you. Phase two is more important on the opportunity buy. Once you have about 60 to 90 days worth of food in your cupboard, and I know that sounds like a lot if you're just getting started, but it'll happen so fast if you take this slow, methodical approach, you really won't believe it. You'll be amazed at how quickly um, you're going to get to a point where you have that much food. It might take you 60 to 90 days to get to 60 to 90 days, but it can be that quick if you just buy extra this, extra that, and keep going and, and doing whatever needs to be done as I deal with a wreck here and a bunch of yard bird idiots. Um, hold on, folks. Something to... All right, I'm back. Typical ass clown behavior on Luke 12. I needed to get overlining. Didn't want to get K Bosch doing it. Um, but once you have that 60 to 90 days or more of storage, let me ask you a question. If you have 60 days worth of canned chicken, I don't know how much canned chicken you use. You probably would use a lot more if you knew some other ways to cook with it. YouTube videos are coming. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Forgot to say that. But I'm going to be doing some videos on cooking with canned chicken. There's all kinds of things you can do with it. But let's say you have 60 or 90 days worth of canned chicken. You go to the store. Um, you've used a few cans. It's time to restock and add one or two more cans to the back. And you look at the canned chicken, and it's unusually high in price. It's not on sale. You don't have a coupon. There's no opportunity to buy there. Do you need to buy any this week or next week? No. So you wait until you have an opportunity buy to replace that particular item. And you look for opportunity buys on everything that needs replacing, and you only buy the things that you have actually got to a point where your pantry's too low on them and you're just going to bite the bullet and pay the price. Or the opportunity buy or the coupon or whatever is there, and everything else you don't buy. Practicing that, it's possible to save 30 to 40% annually on your shopping for, for foods, at least for your storables. 30 to 40%. Pretty easy to do, really. Now, if you tell somebody, hey, you, you store food because the disaster might happen, you probably are going to get looked at a little bit strange unless they're kind of already to that mindset. You tell them, hey, I know a way you can save 30 to 40% on the food that you buy anyway. 
and you don't have to join a club, and you don't have to, you know, pay a fee, and it's not a scam, and I'm not in network marketing and trying to sign you up. I just, I know a whole thing that we do that saves us 30 to 40 percent a year on our food bill. You're going to get some attention because that hits people in the pocket, and it makes a a logical case for why we do this. And that can be done with a with a 60 to 90 day storage capacity. And while I think you should have more than that, it's plenty for 99.9 percent of any emergencies or problems that anybody will have to deal with. Six months is a real sweet spot for me. I, I really admire people to get to a year. We're not at a year. Um, I I don't really want to make any more burden for my since I plan on moving in the next five months. Uh, so we're trying not to acquire anything right now, uh, let alone a, 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 any more surplus of food. We always add a little bit every time we go to Arkansas. But once we get moved, we'll, we'll try to push for that one year. But six months, folks, let's be honest. And, and let's think about food storage in a different way for a second. Food storage is not just about making sure you have enough food to last. It's about making sure you have enough food to buy yourself the time to figure out how to solve the problem it's preventing you from buying or getting food in the first place. Six months is a long time to have to get past that. And that can be done almost completely by storing what you eat. Well, let's go to number three. Number three in my rules are add in long-term storage foods as extenders and adjuncts. Uh, if you don't know what an adjunct is, I picked up that word as a home brewer. An adjunct in home brewing is I'm making a wheat beer. So I've got wheat malt, I've got yeast, I've got hops, and I've got water. That's my beer. But I'm going to make a raspberry wheat beer. When I throw those raspberries in, they're an adjunct. They are an addition to something. They're the cherry on top of the, uh, the ice cream sundae. Right? The whipped cream and the cherry are adjuncts to the ice cream. So when I say adjuncts, I'm saying, for instance, um, not just this is an extender. I always talk about this product. I love this product, Yoder's Bacon. It tastes great. It's an outstanding way to get bacon. It's a good deal on bacon. Right? But it'll store for 10 years, no problem, in a can. And it's rolled up, and you, it's all in paper, and you unroll it, and you pull the little bacons out, and they're all cooked and ready to go. So an adjunct use of Yoder's bacon is every once in a while we pop a can open and we use it, and we might use it for something like making a BLT sandwich or putting some bacon on a couple cheeseburgers. I talked about this yesterday. I don't want to cook six pieces of bacon just so we can have bacon cheeseburgers. I pull the can of Yoder's bacon out, pull out six pieces, warm it on the grill right before the burgers are done, throw it on top, voila, done. Dad's a hero. He made bacon cheeseburgers instead of boring cheeseburgers, but I didn't do any real extra work. Now, how is that different from buying the pre-cooked bacon in the, in the grocery store. That pre-cooked bacon won't st- store for 10 years on your shelf, so it's not a long-term storage item. It costs more than Yoder's bacon, believe it or not. That's not always the case. Most of the long-term storage foods are relatively expensive, but this, in this case, very inexpensive per slice, per piece. So it becomes an adjunct. As an extender, I can have a case of it that's part of my food storage program, And if we get into a crisis situation, I know that it can be at the tail end of my usage of my food storage because it has a, a, a very long shelf life. Additionally, we might store something like freeze-dried cheese, but every once in a while we'll actually buy a new can of it, pop one of them open, and start using the cheese. We learn how to take the long-term storage item and integrate it 
into our regular meals. So that if we get into a crisis situation and we have to go to those long-term storables, we're accustomed to eating them. We're accustomed to preparing food with them. They're not something strange and unusual to us. And by using them, we hone in on the ones that we like the best, and we find the ones that we, yeah, I really don't care for that. And then guess what? We don't buy that one anymore. We don't go out and buy a $7,000 truckload of this stuff and find out that half of it sucks, at least to us. And with the mentality of, well, if I have to, I'll eat it. Well, come on, man. You don't want to live that way. That's not a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't, is it? If you hate eggplant, eating eggplant every day is not going to make your life better. Right? And I agree. If you have to, you will. But why put yourself in that position when you have all the time in the world to make sure you don't end up there? Just by making smart decisions. Then there's two kinds of what I consider long-term storables. One are the prepared foods. Like I've been talking about, the odors, bacons, the freeze-dried food, the mountain house, providing pantry, all that stuff. Some of that belongs in the house of every prepper. 30 days worth, not a bad idea. 60 days worth, even better. Because, let's say I want to get to six months. Four months of storing what I eat, eating what I store every day. Two months of long-term storables, I've got flexibility now. The other type, and this is one people go a little bit overboard on, so be careful with it. Because this is you need to be using this stuff as well. Are the grains and pastas that can be stored in you know things like five gallon buckets with O2 absorbers, and you can get five, ten years out of them. Most of them you really can't. No brown rice. White rice stores just unbelievably a long-term time. You're probably better off with minute rice-like rices. You can actually make your own minute rice. Uh, Tam on um, Bushcraft on Fire just did a thing where she just cooked a bunch of rice. Made, you know, she's making rice for dinner. Made a ton extra. Put it out on uh, on the dehydrator. Dehydrated and made her own minute rice. And if you like to cook fresh rice, hey, that's a good way to go. I can't fault it. I think it's a great idea. And it cooks, you know, instantly like any instant rice product. So your, you know, your rices, your beans, your pasta, and your grains, wheat, uh, barley, uh, things like that. People go overboard on this. They buy like five years worth of the stuff because it's so inexpensive. They have more money into the buckets and the seals than they do into the grain, but then they never use it. Make sure that you're, 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 you're trying to use grains. Get yourself a good grain grinder. Learn to cook with wheat. Learn to make bulgur. I mean, one of the cool things you can do with wheat for breakfast, folks, you take your, your wheat and you, you crack it. You don't really grind it. You crack it. And you put it with hot water in a thermos at night and just shut the, fr- the thermos. And in the morning, you have a great warm cereal. Pour a little bit of honey with it. Wonderful. Absolutely. You'd be surprised how good something simple like wheat is. But learn to use it and make it part of your normal diet. Because it won't just save you money on your long-term storage. It'll save you more money again on your food and you'll be eating healthier. Um, We've really come down on carbohydrates and bread in our in our modern society, and it's a terrible thing. And you know, white flour and white flour sucks, but wheat flour is extremely nutritious, extremely rich in vitamins. Learn to grind your own flour. If you're making beer bread, you need some white. But mix 50 wheat, 50 white. Get your flour uh, from your own wheat. Learn how to do these things now. 
and then use again these long-term storage items as extenders, not the core of your pantry. And it's almost impossible. The reason they say they got to come in at some point, it's almost impossible to use a pure pantry methodology of storing what you eat and eating what you store, and really having a year's worth of a balanced diet. You need some of these things as protein sources, as uh, again the cherry on top of the sundae. Bacon makes everything better, right? Um, cheeses and things like that. You'll do a lot better if you bring in some of the freeze-dried stuff for the true long-term storage. It doesn't get moldy, and it lasts damn near forever. So that's that's how the long-term storage item fits into the whole system. Four is becoming a producer. This is a deep topic because it's not as simple as you would think. As much as I talk about gardening and permaculture, I imagine that as soon as I say become a producer, long-term listeners go, okay, Jack's talking about gardening and permaculture. And I am, but that's not it. There's a ton to being a producer. There's actually three distinct areas of becoming your own producer. Number one, actually four. Number one is hunting and fishing. We'll call it game collection in general. So fish and game. That's phase one. It is probably the least usable in a crisis situation as a producer because everybody's going to go to that well if everybody's hungry trust me in the great depression people talked about eating squirrels and rabbits but it was a treat because a squirrel or a rabbit didn't stand a chance hunting season or not could have been the middle of summer everything's out of season there's a rabbit in the backyard Johnny get the gun the rabbit's dead he's in the pot and that would happen again in another crisis to that level so in a crisis environment not the greatest thing in the world but as a day to day thing to bring food into the home and offset costs it's a tremendous advantage every time i go out to joe pool lake and uh, i spend 50 cents on the gas for the boat because i got this little 5 horsepower motor and i motor out to my little hump and i spend nothing on bait because I fish with slabs, and I come home with 25 sand bass, and that's 50 fillets. What would that cost me if I was buying, let's say, tilapia in the grocery store? And I got to have fun. I got to find a local food source. Um, it's probably a hell of a lot healthier for me than food from the store. Uh, the activity's good. I go down to, to South Texas and shoot a couple deer. I go up to Arkansas and shoot a couple deer in my backyard. There's an expense there, but I'm going to take a holiday or a vacation anyway. And those are low cost compared to some of our other family vacations. And I put, you know, between the two trips, several hundred pounds of meat in the freezer. Go stand in a field for the day, shoot a limited doves, 12 dove breasts. Be kind of expensive in the store. And if you end up eating 10% of your meals a year, the, the protein item comes from a source like that, it cuts down the expense. Then the second one is foraging. Now foraging, I think a lot of people when they think of foraging, they think of like, I don't know, a guy that's like a little mealy mouse guy and he's like running around and like, like digging for whatever he can find to eat. Foraging can be one of the most productive and fun activities in the world. If you know what to look for and you know where to, where to go. Every summer in, in Pennsylvania, while the blueberries were out, we would pack the whole family up, uncles, everybody, and we would go out and pick massive amounts of blueberries. And we'd bring it home and my grandmother would make cupcakes and cakes 
cakes and pies, and we freeze them, and we dry them, and make blueberry raisins, basically. And I mean, but we give some to a guy named Buddy Shoemaker, who was a guy that first got me interested in making wine, and he would make a blueberry wine uh, that was absolutely amazing. We'd do the same thing with blackberries, wild strawberries, uh, you name it. If it was a berry and it grew and it was edible, we'd go out and forage it. We didn't call it foraging. We called it picking berries. And, and this goes into other things like, you know, um, picking wild edibles like lamb's quarters and miner's lettuce and whatever else you can find and learning the local food sources. But again, in a crisis situation, those things are going to come under immense pressure, so they're best used now to augment the other things that you're doing. Then we get into the third phase, and that's gardening and permaculture. And that's doing things like, in, it's, with permaculture, it's also doing things like finding lamb's quarters in the wild, taking seed heads, and coming back and getting them to grow on your property. Or if you live in a place where, let's say, the property around you is wooded and open, and it's not being settled and not being used by anybody, maybe encouraging wild edibles to grow on the surrounding property as well. That looks like weeds, and nobody realizes what it is. And also doing things like planting bushes and, and, and trees and vines that are perennial in nature and come back and produce every year. A grapevine requires, once established, as long as it's getting enough water from nature, and in most cases it will, um, our Concord vines in, in Pennsylvania, I don't ever remember watering that grapevine one time, not once in my childhood now that I think about that. And that vine was over 100 years old. And it's still producing grapes for my dad now. Um, so once they're established, they need very little. The vine needs to be pruned once a year. The tree needs to be pruned once a year. That's it. And then they're constantly producing food for you on your own property. Gardening is more labor-intensive, but it adds variety to the mix. All right? So those are three levels of what I call direct Production, being a producer in a direct manner. Gardening, permaculture, etc. You're taking an action that's immediately producing a food that's immediately consumable. You go out and catch a fish, fillet it, fry it up, eat it, production. You go out and shoot a deer, bring it home, butcher it, chop it up, eat it, production. Then there's the fourth layer of being a producer that is the most important because it takes all of this stuff and it brings it together. And that's being a producer of storables, no matter what the source of the food. And it's something that you can really extend the, you know, the, the actions of foraging and fishing game and gardening and permaculture with. And what I mean by that is if you are into canning and you learn to can, and in your garden, you just grow a ton of green beans, which are one of the easiest things in the world to grow. And at the end of the season or throughout the season, you're constantly putting them up in, in a can situation. And you're throwing those to your pantry instead of going to the store. You're not paying for the beans, but they're still there. And now they're a long-term storable up to a year or more. They're also going to be a lot better for you nutritionally than canned beans from the store because you bring them from the garden to the canner to the jar sealed and done. And, you know, the, the, the process can start 15 minutes after they're picked where canned beans in a commercial environment might be sitting around for a week or two losing nutrient value. Dehydration is a much better method of long-term storage. It lasts longer. The food tastes better. Um, so you learn to dehydrate. Now you dehydrate your bees and you store them in jars. And now you've really got something. You start dehydrating your fruits, your vegetables, all the production in your backyard. 
You also might do things like turn that deer meat into biltong, which is a great long-term soil, or a dry-smoked sausage you can store long-term. Maybe you freeze it to extend its lifetime, but it could last outside of the freezer for a long time if it had to. Jerky, smoked fish, all of these things. Uh, dehydration, canning, and preserving of the wild edibles. You take the blackberries and you turn them into blackberry preserves. You take the blackberries and you turn them into blackberry meat. You use every method of production that you can become comfortable with, and the ones that are the easiest to learn and use are dehydration, canning, freezing. Yes, freezing is included because it's usable now, so you use what's available. Fermentation, smoking, and pickling. If you learn those... You have a massive level of production, and now we bring the end in. Seeking holistic solutions, not magic bullets. The pantry method alone is a magic bullet. Eat what you store, store what you eat, done. Right? The go buy a truckload of mountain house and put it down in the basement, and if the nuclear bombs go off, we'll all go down there, we can survive for a year. That is a magic bullet solution. It's a one-size-fits-all solution. Right, I'm going to go to the to the the foraging, hunting, fishing, game collection. Well, if anything gets bad, I'm not going to worry about it. I know guys I really respect in the wilderness survival industry. That say, I don't even care about home storage. If it ever goes bad, I know all the places around where, and, and like you know, nobody else knows these places. I go there all the time. I don't see anybody. They're not hungry yet, bud. They'll go there. They'll follow you there. They'll figure it out. That's going to come under immense pressure. So by itself, magic bullet solution. Gardening and permaculture, even them left to themselves. You have bad years. The crops don't produce as well. We can have droughts. The disaster itself may be weather-related, right? So as a weather-caused disaster, that could cause a real problem for your little backyard orchard. If your house gets hit by a tornado, if it's that type of disaster, it might be really hard to get any production out of your property for a while. So by itself, magic bullet. Now, the holistic solution is we take all of these methods and we put them together. And we take that last production method of being a producer of storables and we use it to turbocharge everything. Because now here's what happens. I go to my local farmer's market. It's the end of the season. My green bean crops suck this year for whatever reason. I, I couldn't make it work. I didn't get to grow a lot of green beans this year. My local farmer, because he knows what he's doing and his livelihood depends on it. He grew green beans out of his butt. He's got a mountain of green beans. They were picked yesterday. They are fresh. They are beautiful. And he's got them on sale for 70 cents a pound instead of 99 cents a pound at the grocery store for stuff that's three weeks old. And I look at that and I go, wow. If I'm not a producer of storables, I buy a pound or two and we eat green beans for a week and we think, boy, those are really good. I can't wait till they come back in season. If I'm a producer, I go in and go, hey man, 70 cents a pound? How about 60 cents a pound if I buy 20 pounds of beans? And the guy goes, what do you want 20 pounds of beans for? I'm going to go can them. And he goes, or dehydrate them, or whatever. And he goes, it's 65. And we cut a deal, you know, and I give him 13 bucks for 20 pounds of beans, and I go home and I dehydrate them all. And now I've used producer and store what you eat, and I put them together by taking the pantry method of going out and buying something I'm going to eat anyway, but I bought a non-storable, I used my own production method to turn it into a long-term storable, and now I've extended it. 
And it goes back to everything we talked about all the way through. I take the bacon, I put it on the burger. Now I'm taking a long-term storable Yoder's bacon with a short-term storable in the freezer ground meat. I'm combining them, and I'm using them in my day-to-day life or in a crisis. And that's the thing about food storage. Anybody that tells you that rice and beans and, and MREs is the way to go and just do that, or just store what you eat and eat what you store, anybody telling you that is missing the boat because it's not using everything that's currently available to you in the smartest way possible, in a way that makes the most survival sense and the most financial sense and the most lifestyle sense all at the same time. Now, the portions of them are up to you. Like I said, I like to kind of go with, at six months, a four and two ratio. If you're going to go out to a year, I'm more of like a six to seven months uh, of kind of the eat what you store, store what you eat, backyard production, all that. And then you're looking at like five months of long-term stuff because you kind of have to to make it work at that point. But if you want to shift those ratios, it doesn't matter. But just be pulling from every category and finding the things that you like best, that your family likes best in every category. You do that, and this stuff gets really easy, really effective, and really flexible. You have a tremendous amount of portability this way as well. If you have to leave, you have a tremendous amount of variety of what's going to transport well for you. I mean, it's really important that we think about this thing as a, as a holistic process rather than just putting a bunch of stuff in a closet somewhere and going, well, it's there if we need it. That is not the way to live a better life day to day. And with that, I'm going to wrap up. Remember, go by the website. Check out the survivalpodcast.com. Christmas is coming. Check out our gear shop. we got great shirts, hats, badges. Uh, I know the decals are in, so they're going to start shipping. Um, put your orders in early so that we make sure we get stuff to you in time for Christmas for the TSP in your life. But above all, keep on working at these things. Build up that reserve of food. I know that sometimes when things are good, it, it, a lot of folks have lost jobs or on hard times. But a lot of people are still in pretty good shape. A lot of people are going, the economy's not that bad. Dave Ramsey considers it not participating in the Depression. But if you're that person that's not participating in the recession, great. Don't participate for as long as you can. But you never know when disaster's going to strike. That's why you listen to shows like this. So get your food storage program going. Because if you lose your job, but you can put food on the table for four months, and you're out of debt, and you got enough money to scrape by and pay the electric bill and the mortgage for the next four to six months, you can celebrate your job loss and move on to something really cool as the next phase in your life. If you don't have that, you're going to be in panic mode, in danger of losing everything you have, and barely making it on whatever kind of crumbs they give you unemployment. So do the right thing. Do the right things for yourself and your family. And it will pay off whether the disaster that ever comes into your life is personal or global. That won't matter. You'll be able to keep on living that better life. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter. Get spent